Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker. The Riff Raff is a writer's community that champions the work of debut authors and provides guidance, support and services for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. On today's episode, I'm chatting to Sarah Collins, author of The Confessions of Franny Langton, a beautiful and haunting tale of one woman's fight to tell her story in Georgian London. Sarah grew up in Grand Cayman. She studied law at the London School of Economics before working as a lawyer for 17 years. She then studied for a Master of Studies in Creative Writing at Cambridge University, where she was the recipient of the 2015 Michael Holroyd Prize for Creative Writing. Today, we chat about her early obsession with books and her drive to write the type of narrative she'd never read, the role of female anger in novels, and we discuss the magic and the mess of the book writing process. My trial starts the way my life did, a squall of elbows and shoving and spit. From the prisoner's hold, they take me through the gallery, down the stairs, and past the table crawling with barristers and clerks. Around me, a river of faces in flood, their mutters rising, blending with the lawyer's whispers, a noise that hums with all the spite of bees in a bush. Heads turn as I enter, every eye a skewer. I duck my head, parrot my boots, grip my hands to stop their awful trembling. It seems all of London is here, but then murder is the story this city likes best. All of them swollen into the same mood, all of them in a stir about the sensation excited by these most ferocious murders. Those were the words of the Morning Chronicle, itself in the business of harvesting that very sensation like an ink-black crop. I don't make a habit of reading what the broadsheets say about me, for newspapers are like a mirror I saw once in a fair near the Strand that stretched my reflection like a rack, gave me two heads, so I almost didn't know myself. If you've ever had the misfortune to be written about, you know what I mean. But there are turnkeys at Newgate who read them at you for sport. Precious little you can do to get away. When they see I'm not moving, they shove me forward with the flats of their hands and I shiver despite the heat, fumble my way down the steps. Murderer, the word follows me. Murderer, the mulatta murderess. I'm forced to trot to keep up with the turnkeys so I don't tumble crown over ankle. Fair skitters up my throat as they push me into the dock. The barristers look up from their table, idle as cattle in their mournful gowns. Even those old hacks who've seen it all want a glimpse of the mulatta murderess. Even the judge stares, fat and glossy in his robes, his face soft and blank as an old potato, until he screws his eyes on me and nods at his limp-haired clerk to read the indictment. A wave of memory breaks. She's lying in bed, up on her elbows, with her toes pointing into the air. In her hand an apple I'm trying in vain to coax her to eat. Listen, are you listening? She kicks one of her heels. I met a traveller from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. I'm only half listening because it is impossible this thing that is happening, my mistress lying with me in her bed and reading me a poem but also because it was one of those times when it fell to me to watch what they call the balance of her mind, like a pot I had on the stove. Is she well? I'm asking myself. Is she well? She turns to me. Do you like it? Who is it? I ask, stirring her hair with my breath. Shelley, though I like Byron better, don't you? The Prince of Melodrama. She turns over suddenly onto her back and closes her eyes. Byron is proof, if ever it were needed, that a man is merely spoiled by his vices while a woman is soiled by hers. Oh, Francis, Francis, don't you think everyone should be prescribed a poem a day? Woman cannot live on novels alone. She was right about that. A novel is like a long, warm drink, but a poem is a spike through the head. 
Sarah Collins, thank you so much for coming on the Riff Raff podcast. I am delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so delighted, especially because you've been a member of the Riff Raff audience a few times. It's actually kept me going through some very dark days, going to going to bed with your podcast. <laughs> with my dulcet tones in your ear. Absolutely. <laughs> oh my goodness, that is wonderful to hear. So thank you very much. But we're here to celebrate your wonderful book. And, to, um, and so let's start by talking about that, telling us about your debut, The Confessions of Franny Langton. Yes, yeah, so Franny is about Franny Langton, who is a young Jamaican woman who's brought from the plantation where she grows up to London by her owner. She is given as a gift to George Benham, who's a famous natural philosopher. Uh, she then embarks on a very twisted and passionate love affair with his wife, who's this sort of enigmatic, perpetually dissatisfied French woman. And she's later accused of killing them both. And so the book takes the form of her confessions, which she's writing from Newgate Prison at the urging of her lawyer. And she's adamant that she doesn't remember killing Madame, but it soon becomes very clear that she does have some things to confess about some very dark and sinister things that she's been involved with um, at the plantation where she came from. Yeah, my God. It's so excellent. It's so Thank good. you. Um, so the, the kind of idea of, I love the idea that she's writing her confessions. And is that what you, is, is that kind of how you started out? Did you kind of know that you wanted it to be that kind of, because obviously it's, it's telling the story, but you've got that kind of vibe of her writing down her version of events. Did you start with that or did that was that a narrative tool that you came to later in the process? Um, almost everything that works about the book was something that came to me late in the process. And I think this does work. It was kind of a process of trial and error. So it started out as a first person narrative, but um, in a pretty straightforward telling, there wasn't any kind of interposition of... Um, well, there wasn't this sort of device of having Franny frame it as anything in particular. And then I think um, I started while well, I was reading Frankenstein and a few other books for inspiration and having a look at how books are framed. And I love the idea of using a framing device mm. um, and the idea of having her write uh, the novel in the form of confessions, I think, is almost a subversion of the only form of writing you would have seen from someone in her position at the time, which would have been the kind of traditional slave narrative, which she is quite dismissive of. You know, she describes them as being sugared over with misery and despair. And they, they seem to me to be all accounts of suffering. And hers is something completely different. And she wants to establish straight away, I'm not telling the kind of story you expect from a woman like me. Um, and what better way to do that than in the form of a confession? And also, you know, when you're reading a confession that there's going to be some delicious, dark secret coming. So hopefully that kind of keeps you turning the pages. Yeah. And how did, but how did that moment come when you thought this is what, this is the bit that it needs to be, like the confession? Um, I think I was, reading, I was maybe about halfway through and a character who was minor actually no I was writing the so the book ends with Franny's trial and when I was writing the trial a character who had started out as quite minor Pettigrew Franny's lawyer sort of muscled his way into the text a bit more then um, I could understand his motivations a bit better and there seemed to be this interesting relationship developing between him and her where he wanted to come to the rescue and she knew she was going to have to save herself and one of the things I was trying to undercut in the book was this idea of the white savior because that was also quite problematic you know um at the idea that even for someone with the intelligence and the um the larger than life qualities that franny had they would have been so dependent back then on the sort of charity and kindness of of the white savior the abolitionist and, and the lawyer who comes to her rescue and so we had this tension between her and pettigrew which i only really discovered when i was writing the trial and i thought well why not have her address the book to him and that was what prompted me to go back to the beginning. I actually wrote the first chapter. The first chapter was one of the last chapters I wrote. It's often the case, go back to the beginning and um, and have that conversation where he says to her, "You need to give me something to save your neck with. You know, write your story. Mm -hmm. Basically, write it down if you're not going to tell me." And she says, "Right, I will write it." But what she does when she writes, she's actually very pointed. She, you know, we're getting access to her inner life, and it's not what he would expect. It's a challenge to him, and it's a challenge to the <clears throat> excuse me to the preconception um, of how he would have seen her, and perhaps how we would see her from our perspective so many centuries later. Yeah, and you've spoken about that kind of the problematic nature of slave narratives and in interviews and stuff like that. I've yeah. Read. So this this was like a chance to write something that would that was that completely subverted that. Yeah, I mean, I 
the interesting thing for me is that I grew up as this, I mean, obsessive reader. I think it's really, you know, people always say to be a writer, you need to have been a reader first, but I think you also need to have a really obsessive personality. <laughs> Obsessions are so helpful <laughs> for getting novels out of people. And, you know, my earliest obsession was with books and with novels. And it wasn't just um, the case that I could hardly find any characters that were like me in these books that I loved, but also that hardly any people like me had ever written them. That was one of the things that drove the novel, I think. And Franny herself says it, you know, nobody like me has ever written a novel in the history of the world. Um, and when I looked back through the history of black writing and who the first black writers were in, in the sort of modern historical context and, and also Western history, it was really all slave narratives. And they were all, if you read enough of them, they all end up coming across as essentially the same because they're all written with the same agenda and that's to convince people how terrible life was but that never really gives you access to what people were really like you know if, if all you know about them was that they suffered and this book was an attempt to say that in considering the history of writing and of the novel um, where was our place in it and um, at what point did we gain the power to tell our own stories mm. rather than having them filtered through that lens? Yeah. It's the, 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 your love of reading and the love of like kind of like gothic novels and kind of Jane Austen and stuff like that really, I, I got that kind of vibe a lot, the whole, the sort of same, similar kind of energy. Yes. And I wondered how you, um, how you took all of the books that you've read over the years and, and then put them into the sort of exact style of a book that you wanted to read. Or wanted to write even? Yeah, um, that's a good question because I feel like if I knew how I had done it, it wouldn't have felt like it was killing me at the time. <laughs> um, there's a certain, this is not going to be very helpful to people who are trying to write a novel, but there is a certain kind of magic that you can't explain about it after you've done it. And that's, I think, one of the things. You have to allow yourself to be influenced in the right way. So you have to have had I think you've had to have had a lifelong program of the right kind of reading mm. um, to write a novel in the style of something that you love. Uh, and as I said, I was, you know, pretty obsessed with this style. I had a ritual of rereading Wuthering Heights at least once a year throughout my entire teens. Um, that rhythm must be built within you. And I think your, you just, yeah. I think it does become part of your DNA. Mm. Um, the other thing I did, though, speaking of influences when I was writing, is that I would treat myself to a poem every day, more if I was stuck. And I found that if, um, if you can read something beautiful before you write, you allow that rhythm and imagery and music of the language to kind of filter into you. It becomes this wave that builds up. I think that was Virginia Woolf's um, phrase, but it's true. You can soak it in so much that it does start to then come out so and to permeate your own writing. So I'd, I'd often start with a poem. And in fact, Mary Oliver, who just passed away, was one of my big sources. I would dip into her anthologies frequently wow, before before, before starting. Writing. Yeah, How interesting. Because it's. I mean, people tend to have their different routines. And I know some people play music to get them into a certain vibe. Oh, I did that too. Yeah? So I'd have... Um, so, so I'm telling you this sort of romantic picture, but I also was really <laughs> obsessed with my playlist, which would, which would vary from, you know, the very civilized sort of classic Beethoven and, and the like to Kendrick Lamar. So there'd be often be times when I'd be reading my beautiful Mary Oliver poem to the soundtrack of Bitch Be Humble, <laughs> which actually was also good writing yeah. advice before you sit down to the desk. Definitely. Bitch Be Humble. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Kendrick. <laughs> He's, he's such a poet, isn't he? Absolutely. And I think he won the Pulitzer Prize during the time when I was finishing up the novel. So that he won seemed a Pulitzer quite... Prize, did he? Yeah, that, I think I read that, yeah, that he was awarded a Pulitzer Prize. I'm not um, surprised. Yeah. It's the, I find it difficult to listen to hip-hop when I'm writing, though, because of the fact that the thing I like about hip-hop is the lyrics and the stories yes, they tell. Yes, and you're distracted. And, and it's, dist yeah. it's a huge distraction, but then I think that's the one of the major reasons why I like it as much as I do. Yeah, and I, I, mean, I, I didn't really listen to it while I was writing, but I listened to it in what I called my pumping up phase. So it's kind of like my eye of the tiger moment, you know, before I before I do battle at the desk, let me just get, <laughs> let me just inject a little bit of Kendrick Lamar into my veins. Amazing. Oh my God, what a good like psych up thing to have. Um, so another, just going back to the kind of tools that you use, the framing devices, you also use a trial, which is such a like kind of lovely, neat 
way of you know because all, all the way through you're you know you know that she's on trial for these murders and then all the way through you're waiting for the kind of like the culmination of the trial do you think obviously you have a legal background do you think that um i know you read a lot about um how legal cases went back in that in that period right and um, but i want do you did, did you feel like kind of a natural draw towards the tr- having the trial as like bookending the book or was that just what happened? And again, it was something that came to me late in the drafting because I I finished my first chapter after writing the trial scenes. And after writing the trial scenes, I realized that starting with it would put us in the middle of Franny's predicament, the middle of her dilemma. It would sum it up so helpfully before you started to read about her early life. Mm. And I think if I hadn't started with that sense of action and forward movement, it would have read too much like a straight autobiography, maybe too chronologically. Um, I really wanted the excitement and the tension and the anticipation of knowing the extreme jeopardy she was in before she started to tell her life story. Mm. And then you can you can read everything based or framed around that. Idea yes. That, that how did she end up here? Right. What has contributed? To You're holding a question in your head as you read, which is the idea about building up suspense that. You, you've been you, the, the writers made you a promise in a way when you start. That's how I saw it. I was making the reader a promise. You know, there are questions here. We're going to answer them. This is what you need to know before we answer them. Amazing and uh, yeah, so satisfying as a reader and also, and I imagine as a writer to write or, or well, I mean we'll get to that in a minute. But did you did you write the beginning and the did you write the trial as one thing and then go back and do it or did you, uh, the sort of history of what went on or did you write the history of what went on and then framed it around that what was the actual writing timeline um the one thing i remember is that it was not chronological i had to write especially the further on i got into the process and the more exhausted i got i had to write things i was in the mood for and things i enjoyed when the mood arose and there were times when I was really fed up of Franny. Um, you know, she had lived in my head for a long time. She was waking me up at night. You know, I couldn't <laughs> sleep for sort of writing down things she needed to say. And I'd, you know, wake up at midnight or one in the morning and have to turn the light on and get my phone out and make notes. And if I wanted to leave her behind, then I would tackle something else. Then I would tackle the trial or one of the artifacts, because as you know, the book is also sort of, there are um, extracts from testimony from the various witnesses interspersed throughout the book. Or I would tackle Benham, because some of the book is written from his perspective in the style of his journals. Um, so I had a long process of, I, I knew the outline, and I had a long process of picking from the outline the things I wanted to work on when I was in the mood to work on them. And then when I had the raw material and several, 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 probably hundred drafts later, um, I could see what I had. I then started thinking about how do I want to put it together? And that's when things like the, you know, the framing or the where would the midpoint be? That's where those things really became um, fixed or more fixed than they had been. Yeah. There's something wonderful about that kind of period where you're just writing the bits that you're called to. Yeah. Isn't it? But then yeah. there's also that kind of, I'm quite an organised person, and the the draw to be putting it into some kind of structure, that pressure, when, you, when you're doing that kind of, well, this is what I feel like writing today and all that kind yes. of stuff. But there, there is always that pressure to kind of get some order to it. That's so absolutely true. And I felt like there was part of the real discomfort of sitting with your first draft is that you're at war. This ordered side of you is at war with the messy aspect of the process. And you can't, it's really hard to tolerate the imperfection and the failure when you see it sort of coming out as a jumbled mess <laughs> and you don't know how you're ever going to whip it into shape. I think a lot of actually getting to the end of the book for me, actually finishing writing, was figuring out how to tolerate that. And it wasn't always easy. It was, you know, it was quite mentally and emotionally tiring at times. This um, You conquer all kinds of demons when you're writing a book, I think. And for me, I've always been a perfectionist. And I think it was a really good exa- um, exercise in in letting go of that in order to allow the work to come out. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. How interesting. And you you conducted a lot, in your author's note, you talk about a lot of the research that you did before you wrote the book or as you wrote the book. And I wondered whether, um, what kind of came first? Because I'd love to hear more about you, how you how you got published as well. But did you did this come to you because you'd started reading these certain bits and pieces or um, because you were doing this kind of research into that time period? And then you 
come up came up with a character and stuff like that or was it you came up with the story that you wanted to tell and then you ended up doing the research uh I, I think I was born with this novel sort of percolating away, really. I think, you know, I think it's always been bubbling away. But there are maybe two answers to that. One is the romantic one, which is um, I did do all of this research and I had always felt nagged by the gap in Gothic fiction, the idea that there were no black protagonists and hardly any black characters. And, you know, that sort of swept me along in a wave of righteous fury to write the book. But the practical answer is that I was doing a degree. I was doing a master's and I needed a thesis project. Oh, wow. That's, and um, and I think I think it was maybe one evening we'd had a seminar on life writing. And I was in discussion with the um, woman who had led the seminar about how difficult it was to trace your family tree in the Caribbean because of the the impact of slavery and and the way records were kept. And um, just following that, she recommended to me the biography of Francis Barber. And I had read it, and I think it was one evening when I was casting around for an idea, like I literally needed to submit my proposal <laughs> or you know, have nothing to meet the <laughs> deadline with, that I thought, ah, but there's a spark there in this story of Francis Barber, who was a young Jamaican boy who was brought to London himself and given as a gift to Samuel Johnson, who mm. everyone's heard of Samuel Johnson and few people have heard of Francis Barber. And they became quite close. So Barber became Johnson's manservant when he was 12 years old, I think. And they became so close that even when Barber, by his account, sort of ran away to the Navy, Johnson tracked him down and brought him back. And Johnson also left him a substantial legacy in his will. And what really fascinated me was the that idea of interdependence, which is what I think the book wants to explore. So we've always seen the legacy of slavery in this historical fiction context as the really stereotypical physical suffering. But I think part of the angle at which Franny comes at the hardship is this idea of interdependence, of being being wrapped up in the lives of these people you were serving, being in the house, um, having to in some way become complicit in what's going on in order for your own survival, and how that can lead to guilt and shame, which in itself is a form of suffering. So there was a, so there was a, that kind of process of I have to be practical about this and just find something. Oh, this is an interesting story I read. But then also the more I wrote it, the more I realized here are the deep themes. Here is what's coming to the surface. This is what I can make a book out of. Amazing. And so you wrote a thesis on that topic, did you? Yes. So so, wow, so, so you creative must... thesis for the yeah. masters. Yeah. Amazing. And where was the masters? At Cambridge, the oh, yes, um, of course. the part time yeah. masters of studies at yeah. And then in creative that, writing, you entered the Lucy Cavendish Prize, didn't you? So let's let's maybe segue. Nice segue yeah. there. I see how you did that. Slick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never normally that slick. So what a wonderful coincidence. Um, so yeah. So you so you you entered. You mentioned earlier. You mentioned you entered ten thousand words of of the sort of original iteration of this book into the Lucy Cavendish Prize. Yeah, and I really have. I mean, to this day, I think of that moment as magic because I wasn't. I entered it in a very kind of careless way. I wasn't really thinking, oh, fame and fortune will follow. I only had about 10,000 words of the novel. And I think I was at the stage where it was almost enough um, for what I needed for my master's. And I was at the stage where I had to decide whether I was going to keep going with it for any other reason. And I'd found through my experience with short story competitions that it's really helpful to enter competitions. Um, for so many reasons, you you kind of gain access to all kinds of um, support and encouragement and you meet friends and and I thought well let me try and do this for the novel and if it if it if it's recognized if it's shortlisted or um, or does well then that will be some kind of indication that maybe it's worth um, persisting with it and so I put my submitted my 10,000 words and I remember at the time when I pressed the button it was the deadline it was probably hours before the cutoff point and it was that will I won't I moment and I remember thinking to myself you know so far you've spent however much it was on competition fees and you've not been you've not earned a cent through writing like you know the the sort of the balance sheet is not adding up here but give this a go so whatever the fee was I paid it and I sent it off um, and it was uh, shortlisted to my delight and as a result of the shortlisting I met Nell Andrew who was one of the judges and who is now my agent Amazing. Um, 
uh, ostensibly for feedback. And I really was so naive that I didn't realize when I went to her offices for this feedback session that there was the possibility that she would um, make me an offer. Not least because I didn't actually have a finished novel at the time. Um, but it was the first thing she did. Wow, really? Tell us about that. After I, I, well, I mean, she spent, I walked in. So I I had this kind of rom-com moment where I woke up in the morning and I thought, I'm going to a literary agency today. And I had this sort of movie scene picture of a literary agency in my mind. And so I was just very excited about the, the thought that this was a world that I had so long admired, but stood on the outside of. And I think anyone who wants to have a book published knows that feeling. It, it seems as magical as the land of the hobbits, like you could never possibly get there. And so I was just really charged with this excitement that, you know, the feeling that I was going to just step over the threshold. And so I spent the whole morning with my head in the clouds, like it was a beautiful day. And I went to a little garden um, near to the offices beforehand. And then when I got there and Nellie's, you know, was all business and she had my pages in hand, she'd printed them off and I, you know, I sort of followed her and she's a powerhouse of a woman. So, you know, on first impressions, very intimidating. And we sat in her office and she set the pages aside and said, I don't want to talk about these now. And I thought, oh my God, she hated it that much that she's had to basically honor the contract to kind of give me this feedback session. But she's now going to tell me that she hated it so much. She doesn't even want to talk about it. And instead, she said, I'd like to make you an offer of representation. Wow. Uh, Well, I almost (laughs) fell off my chair. I did start crying, but I was trying to sort of hold it together and look like, you know, the professional woman I was trying to appear to be. Um, And I said, you'll have to forgive me if I burst into tears, because honestly, I wasn't expecting this moment. It's funny, because I think most people will get the offer when you've worked for it, you've been querying, you've been sending it. So you've geared yourself up for it. It completely came out of the blue for me. And I said to her, you do realize I haven't finished. And she said, that's fine. I know you will. And honestly, if not for Nell, I probably wouldn't have finished the book because thereafter she was waiting for it. And I knew, you know, I made her a commitment that day that I was going to finish it. And that commitment kept me going very, very many a day when I would want to give up. Yeah, I would have gone back to that garden that you were in before and had a little cry, I think, after that. Well, I did. (laughs) After I sort of, I called my husband, I (coughs) squealed on the sidewalk, jumped up and down a bit, then went back to the garden. so. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness, what a wonderful story. And then, and then, so from that point, you, it took two years for you to write the book. About, well, that from by that point, I'd spent a few months. So it was just on, just less than two years to write the book. And I do mean two years full on. So because Nell was waiting for it. And I, I had the idea in my head that she wanted it within a year. I think maybe I even foolishly promised a year. One of the first things I learned when writing is that you never know how long it's going to take. You know, deadlines are always these beasts sort of in the corner nagging away at you. But sometimes it just takes as long as it takes. Um, I ended up needing two years. I probably needed five years, but I had to squeeze all of the research and everything into two. Um, And it was a period of intense work with very few breaks. I really had to pull the stops out to get it done. So you were doing it full time? I was doing it full time and I I had in the entire time I had two days off and that includes all of the family holidays we took. So I became really unpopular in my household with my husband and children because I never took, I never took a full day off. So even if I take a few hours off, you know, in the evening for something, I was always working. Yeah. Always, always Always keeping your head in the project. Yes. I had to, I had to be immersed. There's there's a lot of people that we've had on this podcast and at the Riffraff and stuff that say that even if you just write a sentence a day, just keeping your kind of head in the game. Yes. Is... So having been so intensely in it for that kind of period of time, how does it feel to then not have that? Then not. I mean, obviously you're talking about it a lot now, and yes. you're traveling around, and like, and it's out. It's ne- it's nearly out in the world. Um, but how does how do how are you feeling now that it's like that? That the hard work has paid off. Um, obviously, as well, I think we should mention the your journey to publicate like the sort of publication thing. Like, I'm going to read it because I want to get it right. So. Viking preempted the evening before there was due to be a nine-way auction. Yeah. Um, so it, it was also preempted by HarperCollins in the USA and Canada and sold to auction in Germany and it preempted to Italy, France, Spain and the Netherlands. And a few others since then. It's yeah. also been sold in Sweden and Poland. 
And it's going to be the lead title in the US and the UK in 2019. Yeah. And a few more. Yeah, a few more since then. Oh my God, let's high five. It's that, yay! <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy for you. Like you Honestly. committed to it. You dedicated yourself like every day for two years and that's what happened. Like I hope that you're taking a moment to kind of see how, you know, like how amazing that is and that all your hard work paid off. I need to remind myself to take a moment. This is the kind of story I would have listened to on your podcast two or three years ago and thought that will never happen to me. It really is the kind of thing you think will never happen to you. But it's very easy to be swept away in all of the pressures that come with it Mm. and forget to enjoy it. Mm. Um, So I am trying to, you know, every now and again, I stop and pinch myself. But I have to say, and this is going to sound like I'm just saying it, but I really mean it that the most special thing is just joining the club. It's just being able to say you're a writer. You know, when I have a conversation with a cabbie now and he says, what do you do? I say, I'm a writer. And I feel very, I, I feel so darn privileged to be able to say that. And all the other stuff is icing on the cake. I mean, it's a dream come true, but having the book published is already a dream come true, you know, published in whatever form to whatever level. Um, now, of course, because of all of this, um, interest and because so many people have put their faith in the book and have made such an investment in it I kind of feel this pressure the perfectionist that I am to really do my best to get out there and talk about it and spread the world's word word so that is another aspect of the sort of intense you can work all day you can never get a break you know I'm trying to remember that I do need my breaks and I need to pace myself yeah I mean that sheer determination that you've clearly got like if you can if you can apply I mean everyone needs a day off and the fact that you only took two off I mean I wish that I could work that hard and and, you know no I will never do it again I have to tell you yes it wasn't it was ill-advised it was extremely ill-advised but I I had to produce the book and um it was I, I definitely will not do that again so for the next project I will put my foot down and say you know this will take as long as it will take Mm. hopefully I'll be able to be a diva by then and say (laughs) you will all just have to wait for it (laughs) yeah and just and like have that kind of bit more bit more chill yeah a bit more you know what's that sort of term everyone uses a bit more self-care yeah yeah a few spa days sounds like a good idea but you were talking about the nine-way auction and I have to have to tell you that the sort of ironic ending to all of this is that, you know, I sort of got to the end of this whole process when, um, when the book was going on submission, I had barely slept for a week finishing it, getting it ready. And I thought and promised my husband, right, this is it. This is the light at the end of our tunnel. I will not have to do anything on the book for at least a couple of weeks. And Nell had told me, who knows, you know, sometimes it takes months sometimes it even takes years you've got to be patient I remember actually really optimistically emailing her because my husband and I then planned our first proper holiday where I'd be doing no no work and we were going to Amsterdam just the two of us I was gonna pay some attention to him for a change and we were gonna have this really romantic couple of days so I emailed Nell very optimistically just in case this is where I'll be and she replied saying I definitely won't need you so off we go to Amsterdam and literally the minute we land I get a call about about the fact that there are publishers interested and then I had to deal with non-stop phone calls the entire time we were there but we did have one moment to ourselves after we after I got off the phone and knew we were going to um, go with Vikings offer where we snuck my husband and I snuck down to the bar and had gin and tonics the best gin and tonic I ever had (laughs) and then um, danced to Damien Marley in our hotel room all night so that was my moment of celebration yeah but um, you know even when I thought I was going to get a rest and a break from the darn book I did not yeah how was how how soon after the submission of the book did all that interest come in? Was it was it literally like you thought that it was just off and that's that's meant that meant you could have a holiday? And yeah, then it was about it was forty eight hours. 48 I think. Hours, really. Yeah, I submitted it and then sort of got on a plane. And <laughs> by the time I landed, it was it was all happening. So, so it was. And how, what do you think the time period was between that kind of happening? And so it would have only been like a few days like yeah. three, until yeah. you signed with, with Viking um, maybe a few days longer but un- until we had all of the interest and people calling and that kind of thing a couple of days so when I landed there was all the kind of the, you know the publishers who had indicated that they were interested oh my god what, yeah. a, what a dream scenario it yeah. sounds wonderful <laughs> <laughs> um, so back to the book 
Um, well, obviously that's about the book, but um, I've been reading a lot about fe- and writing a lot about female anger recently. Oh, um, yeah, I'm glad yeah. you mentioned oh. this. <laughs> so it was, it was wonderful to see it one like woven through the novel and as a really overriding, like little bubbles of it, little mentions of it, and um, real kind of um, glimpses at why it's, you know, why she was justified to feel it. I mean, throughout, like constantly. Um, so I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about the role of female anger in, within the novel. I'm so glad you mentioned it because I don't think we see enough anger in novels. I, I'm actually amazed at, there were two things that amazed me when I went looking for antecedents um, for the book, how little people write about female anger and how little people write about black people in love. Mm. Um, both of the things I wanted to write about. I mean, we have been darn angry for centuries. Who's been expressing it? Mm. Um, It seemed fascinating to me. One of the models I took for the book was Jane Eyre. And um, interestingly enough, Joyce Carol Oates wrote about Jane Eyre, that she was a kind of depiction of um, scarcely concealed rage. And that appealed to me. If you go back looking for the clues Mm. throughout Jane Eyre, it's always sort of hinted at. There's an idea, even when anger appears in writing about women, that it has to be suppressed. Mm. And I wanted to study the effect of that anger when it is expressed and also how it is expressed. I think the book is a study not only of Franny, but Madame with whom she falls in love. Mm. They're both angry. Mm. But I think with Franny, you see it is quite explosive. And with Madame, it becomes implosive. But I had this in mind all along that um, in order for them to become real people, we had to be, we had to approach honestly what they would have been feeling in these terrible conditions they had to endure. Definitely. And, and the Linux natural well. response and Linux yeah. and FIBA. In yeah. fact, all of the women in the, in the novel are bloody angry and they express it in different ways, which would be the natural response, I think, to mm. some of the things that were done to them. Definitely. Um, you know, what surprises me is that it hasn't been done before. There hasn't been enough of this. And so now I think of, you know, Franny being that, Franny would be that Beyonce with the baseball bat and the level, you know, like she would be smashing things up. And the novel, in a sense, was trying to embody that, that feeling of letting it out. Mm. And Sal as well. Like she's yeah. she's a strong like yes. angry character, but like a bit less apologetic about it. She's you know she's she's very kind of unapologetically herself. Yeah, Sal is an interesting character because she was my favorite, and mm. she was my favorite because she was the most well balanced, and I think she was the mo- most well balanced precisely because of what you say, because she had come to terms with her anger. Mm. And she was unapologetic about it. There wasn't any struggle. There was no internal struggle with Sal, Mm. which of course would have made her a really bad protagonist, but she was quite a good sidekick for that reason because she she represented what Franny could have been if she had dealt with her anger in a different way, perhaps. Yeah, but but like that contrast between the two is such an interesting dynamic. Yeah. And then, yeah, like that, but that kind of, that journey towards trying to release that anger or come to terms with it and accept it about yourself, that's... I mean, do we, do we ever? Or right. you know, like, so it's so it's interesting to kind of like to to be following that journey through all, and different aspects of it through different injustices yeah. and different characters. It's and do we need to? You know, one of the things I found, um, the conclusion I found myself coming to when writing the book is that anger is such a useful emotion, and we talked about the anger the characters felt, but I felt a great deal of anger writing the book, not only because I had to research and spend time with these accounts of really awful things that happened in the past, but also because I was writing the book during 2015, 2016, when awful things were happening in the world. On both sides of the Atlantic, I was kind of watching things move backwards um, in in terms of rights for women, in terms of... Um, uh, how black people were viewed in terms of immigration and migration. All the things I was writing about, it felt as if we had not come that far since the early 19th century. And that made me really angry. Of course. And that anger, I think, I harnessed it. Um, I tried to allow it at times through a kind of fil- process of filtration to guide 
guide me to the live wire for the book, if you like. That thing that, you know, whenever I touched it, there was a spark that gave the book whatever whatever life and animation it has. Yeah, and it has so much life and animation. Like, and so many, so many emotional responses. Because I was so darn angry. Yeah, that's a surprise. <laughs> but you're right, anger is a very useful emotion. And it, and it also is, um, like, it's... It's not wrong to feel it, yeah. But because, but that kind of frustration at having to suppress it, and that kind of that makes people ill. It bubbles out. It yes. always bubbles out, and it, it's bubbling out all across that book, yeah. which is yeah it's, yeah, it's expertly done. Thank you. Um, yeah. So um, you also make a couple of really powerful statements about writers and novels, which I know they don't necessarily have to be your opinion just because you wrote them in the book. But I just wanted to discuss them with you. Yes. Um, so you you have a statement in there that says. Um, Firstly, well, this is the first example. The trouble with writers is they spend their lives trying to lie to themselves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was like, felt like someone had got like hit me between the eyes. I was like, oh my god, I agree. Are you are you lying to yourself, Amy? <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> but I just wanted to, if you could talk a bit more about the sentiment behind that statement. Yeah, I mean, there was so much. First of all, most of what I say about writers and writing in the book is true and it's also a cry for help from the author of the book (laughs) so many times when I was feeling you know the writerly despair I would thought well let me just use it you know there's a scene where Madame burns the pages of the thing that she's working on because she just thinks it's crap and you know that that came from a moment of despair like that myself I never burned any pages but you know boy did I want to so a lot of that stuff is me um, and there I was thinking, I mean, I was thinking about all kinds of things, but, but one thing in particular, which is that how chaotic life is, you know, most people who write, I always think that we wouldn't write if we didn't lose things. Like most people who write are trying to hold on to something. And what we're trying to hold on to is a sense of order. We're trying to make sense of things that don't make sense. Mm -hmm. And isn't that the big lie? But yet we have a compulsion to keep on doing it. Like finding that one explanation for it is it's not that neat yes so how are you ever going to get that? right we are never going to get there but we continually chase it and it is like all addictions in that way that you know we think there's a high coming and we're going after it <laughs> oh my god you're speaking to and there are there right are momentary <laughs> pleasures along the way well we you know that's that that's that kindred spirit and again it goes back to me you know what this feeling of privilege like just being able to speak to someone who also understands that feeling. You know, I grew up as this kind of bookish young kid who was very isolated by that feeling, my obsession with books and writing, that actually chatting with other writers and and understanding that I wasn't alone in that, I just find it so wonderful, really. Mm. Um, and that's part of the, the message of the book, that sense of connection that you can get from reading and writing and how awful it is that that was deprived uh, and still is, that it was that so many people were deprived of it mm. um, during these terrible points in our history. Absolutely, absolutely, and that kind of leads on to the next point I have. But like, because life boils down, because life boils down to nothing in spite of all the fuss. Yet novels make it possible to believe it is something after all. Yeah, yeah. again, the sort of the big lie. So I think of writing as an antidote to grief. It's kind of a way to live forever. Um, well, you won't live forever, but the but you make something that will outlive you, and um, and that's a really powerful thing to be able to do. It's mind-boggling, actually, to think that that you could make something that might affect other people and also might last for a very long time. Um, you know, I decided to enroll on the creative writing masters because two very dear friends of mine who were really creative women in their own right one of them was a dancer passed away and I really felt that coming towards the end of the book in particular when I was letting letting go of it I really felt that um you have to you have to give it a shot if there's something you really want to do you have to try to do it that was the thing that drove me to write the book and I think that's what I was trying to say that um you know, in Franny's sort of, Franny's last words, if you like, that if you can make something and leave it behind, then it gives value to life. Mm. Um, it, it, it makes it something meaningful. And one of the most powerful things I had found to do that in my life were novels. Mm. Such a wonderful sentiment. Um, yeah. Um, do you, one thing that I think is, um, obviously very apparent is a determination I've said that already but so how for people that are 
trying battling through their kind of first draft of, or not first draft but they're battling through their first novel and they're trying to apply themselves as as you have how what tips do you have what advice do you have for people well i used to do a lot of wallowing in other people's misery but i found it really helpful i think the first thing that i would say is what helped me which is understanding i wasn't alone in feeling like I'd taken on something that was too big for me to handle, in feeling like I didn't know what I was doing, in feeling like I wanted to give up. All of those trigger these senses of failure, which I wasn't very comfortable with. But then I would write, I would read about other writers going through the same thing, their processes and how hard it was to get the draft out. And I would, I would feel really encouraged by that. So, you know, I'd, I'd be sitting there Googling something like Jane Austen, terrible, shitty first draft. Um, and then I remember I did come across a first, some, some extract where it was clunky and the dialogue wasn't good and she was obviously working on it. I forget from which novel. Um, and I used to look at that often when mine was in the same shape, just to remind myself that I could get from a, I could get from a position of real chaos to a position where I'd polished it to what I wanted it to be, but I had to give it time. And the other thing um, I think is to remind yourself to, to touch that live wire. So remind yourself why you're writing um, because you need to be motivated from the inside. There are very few, sometimes there are very few things that will, that will reach you from the outside. And so there's a line in the book where Franny says, she's talking about why she's doing this at all. And she says, you know, um, men write to separate themselves from the common history, but women write to try, to try to join it. And that for me was almost the live wire that if I needed, if I felt like I was going to drift away from it or I would just felt like I was going to give up, I would remind myself why I was doing it and that I would do it even if I was the only person ultimately that would ever read it. That compulsion to say something that would, that would last mm. and that would mean something to other people. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and what are you writing now? <laughs> now are you giving yourself a well-deserved holiday um well i wish i could have a holiday so I'm, I'm working on trying to work on adapting franny for television wow um amazing which oh means i God. haven't even though i'm kind of fed up with franny can i say that can i confess <laughs> yeah, that can. i am kind of fed up with franny langton absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um i still have to spend time with her but i also have um so my second book is going to be about a cult because Excellent. We have to um, follow the path of our obsessions, and that's been one of my lifelong obsessions. Um, and it's about a cult in the Caribbean, but that's all I can really say because I'm still kind of messing around with it, you know, that process where I'm getting stuff out and seeing if I can put it together. Cool. So it hasn't taken shape yet. But you haven't got a two-year deadline. No, I do not, and I will not accept one. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just like to know also what your daily routine is when it comes to writing. If you're, if you're doing it full-time... What does it? What does it? What does a normal day look like? Yeah, I've heard um, and read a lot of writers get really obsessive about their routines as well. And I ended up. I mean, I, I discovered my routine through trial and error. It wasn't like I sort of set out with it, you know, cast in stone. But then during the course of writing the book, it became very rigid. So I'd be up at the same time every day. I'd work the same number of hours. Um, I'd. I'd Start with coffee because that is the number one requirement. <laughs> a little caffeine. Um, you know, I'd, I'd work in the same place. I would be very organized about the writing itself. So I have lever arch files. I have notebooks. Um, I kept track of things like research and different color coded files. And I felt what I was doing was putting a kind of safe framework around me. So, it felt like work and therefore I got to work, if that makes sense. Like it, I made it feel like a working day. So I wasn't going to an office and I was probably in my pajamas, let's face it. <laughs> but I was in the space that said I was going to work. And that worked for me. Um, and also then I used all of the tools of work. So when I got, you know, I got a proper um, desk and proper files and um, it it helped me to take it seriously. But then I think there is also something about the habit, setting up these habits for writing, that probably means you're going to be doing it for long enough for the good stuff to come. Because the other thing I had to learn is you might have a wasted day that you can't regret. You just have to 
close the book on it and move on to the next one. And then it turns out months later not to have been a wasted day because something you noted in your research or some line you thought you were throwing away actually is going to crack the whole thing open. Mm. And if you hadn't, I think if I hadn't had the process in place where I was doing eight till eight or whatever it was every day, no matter what, treating it like work, I might not have had that material built up Mm. um, that then became the inspiration for the real magic and I find it's one of the biggest misconceptions. People who aren't writers will say to me, you know, when I was struggling, people would say, oh, you just need to go to the beach and you'll get inspiration. Just go sit by the waves. And it didn't work that way for me. It wasn't like just sort of sitting and receiving. I had to really work away at it, like yeah. chipping away at the book day by day in that um, very organized, very almost formal kind of setup that I had. Yeah, that, go- that goes back to kind of what you were saying about, you know, Jane Austen writing bad um first draft yeah because like you you have this when you're when you've got all of these writers that you admire or you're looking at authors that have just been published you think that they just sit down at their desk and and smash out excellent um, sentence after excellent sentence it's so true it's just that's the that's the image we have from movies of people just sitting there and just not (laughs) having any yeah surrounded by crumpled up pieces of paper exactly and they're using type they're all using typewriters of course because laptops are yeah exactly (laughs) it's, it's that kind of idea that um like putting the hours in at the desk so that you write the words and even if it is like you say just like one sentence or one nugget of an idea like the fact that you've you've come to that and like i find that the 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 tangents that you get or the ideas it, it is it happens as you write and so much of it is rubbish but it is what it's yes. those little bits that are just yeah a, a, how you move forward it's learning how to recognize where those bits are i think i read somewhere that hillary mantel said a novel is a triumph of deletion and it's so true <laughs> because you have to put down a whole pile of rubbish and then sift through it well i don't know if if everyone has to i can only speak for myself there was a massive pile of rubbish and then i <laughs> sifted through it to find the the things that were supposed to be there you have to cut away at all of the superfluous stuff and you find you then bring the novel out of it. Yeah. yeah, but like that, that even though that's frustrating, that moment when it emerges. Yes. And what you've um, what's emerged from your novel is incredible. You should be Thank so you. proud of it. And, Thank um, you. I wish you all the all the luck in the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. A joy to be here. Thank you. Have you heard about the Riffraff Mentoring Scheme? This is a new service we've launched, which pairs those currently working on books with published contemporary authors within your specific genre so that you can get expert advice and feedback on your work in progress. To read more, learn how to get involved, and to check out our incredible lineup of author mentors slash coaches, head over to the-riffraff.com or come say hey on Twitter at riffraff underscore LDN.